I will never take a call as a pastor to be in the suburbs of America, is what my one pastor friend told me. And before you get offended or just think, what in the world? Let me give the context around it and, and the point that he started to make after he said that. He started to say that the suburbs of America, what they stood for back when they were really growing in popularity and also what they stand for today in large part was and is comfortability. It's kind of the American dream, the American ideal of what you would want out of life. The suburbs promised uh, big homes but also affordable homes, increased privacy, safety streets, They offered all of the accommodations of modern life, easy access to that, and all at the best part, you don't have to afford giving up your job. Everything is accessible. Now, again, before you take his words too literally, maybe you're saying, I'm not a suburb person anyways. I I don't really like the suburbs. You know, my idea of comfortability is the wide open spaces. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're saying, actually, I'd prefer the urban life, the cramped life of living in a condo in downtown Chicago. Whatever it may be, don't lose the point. The point that he was trying to make is this. How do you minister? How do you minister to people who seem to have everything who seem to have no problems, they've got the house, they've got the family, they've got the pet, they've got the car, they've got the garage, they've got all these things, and tell them, you, maybe you're missing one thing. How do you tell people who are so comfortable and seeking more comfort and totally fine and relaxed, seemingly problem-free, how do you tell them that they think they have everything and you have to say, I don't think you have anything? of true value. I think that point is a lot of what God's Word wants to tell us today and a lot of the reason why Jesus was trying to drive home this parable to his audience and to understand why he brings up this parable in this specific context. It may not, it it almost seems like you're reading two disjointed things. They really are connected. To understand it, you have to understand the first couple verses with this, why Jesus brought this parable up in the first place. He's with a group of people from Luke 12 and into 13, and these people bring up uh, the headline news of the day, massacre in the temple. The Roman governor of that day, Pilate, had for some reason, we don't know all the details, He had slaughtered a bunch of Galileans. We don't know the reasons why, but apparently when these Galileans, these northern Israel people, were worshiping in the temple, that's when Pilate ordered his soldiers to storm the temple, come in mid-sacrifice, mid-worship, and cut them down. And the massacre was so bloody that apparently you couldn't tell where their animal sacrifices ended and their slaughter began. It was awful. It was tragic. And whenever we hear tragic news, whenever we hear something startling like that, it's a very human thing to ask the question, why? Why did it happen that way? We, we want to rationalize it. There's got to be some sort of reason. And these people had figured the reason why this had happened, and Jesus picks up on it as faulty as it was in verse 2. Jesus said, after they told him this, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way. So then Jesus brings up another news headline. Maybe it didn't make the front page, 
maybe the second page, the Tower of Siloam that fell and killed 18 people in that Jerusalem neighborhood. You guys heard of that? Oh, yeah, we heard of that. Here's what he says about that. Those 18 who died in the tower, when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? And so, do you get the insinuation that they were making? They see these people who died these tragic, awful ways, and their first thought is, well, they must have done something terrible. They must have done something so bad. They must have had some sin or group of sins that were really guilty. And God is bringing out his punishment on them. God is throwing down the hammer, and that's why they died such a horrible way. And before you think that line of thinking was isolated in that area, it wasn't. It was actually a very popular line of thinking. In uh, John chapter 9, Jesus is with his disciples and they come across this guy who's blind and his disciples ask him, Jesus, who sinned? Did this man sin or did his parents sin that he's blind? Again, is the insinuation, right? Well, he's blind. He's suffering. It's terrible. It's horrible. Who sinned? Whose fault was it? Did this guy do something to deserve this or did his parents? Is God punishing him for his sins or is God punishing his parents for his sins? And this line of thinking has also been around for longer than that. In the book of Job, in the Old Testament, the whole book of Job is really about kind of this line of thinking. The first couple parts in that book, it tells you that Job is the most righteous person of all of his peers of the day. He's so blessed by God, and yet God, in his wisdom, in his ways, allows awful, unimaginable tragedy to strike Job. And the rest of the whole book is basically Job's three quote-unquote friends who come to him and basically say, Oh, Job, man, what happened? You were up here, now you're below rock bottom. What did you do? You must have done something to tick off God. You must have done something so bad to get him so angry at you. You better, you better confess it. You better repent of it. Job, come clean. Get back on God's good side. But this line of thinking isn't just around then. It's around today. We rationalize things in the same way. We, even in religious ways, we, we do this, right? I, I remember thinking in my youth, certain things were happening in my life. <laughs> That's because God is punishing me. I did that. I knew I shouldn't have done that, and that's what he's getting at me for. Okay, God, I will bargain with you, and I won't do that anymore, right? Have you done that before? I've counseled people who have said in tears, it's because God's angry at me. It's because God is so mad at me. He's just, this is what I deserve. He's, he's giving me what I deserve. This, this is it. This is why this is happening. And this line of thinking, do you know what other spiritual line of thinking it's along the same lines of? You heard of karma? I'm sure you have, right? Not credit karma. Karma, the actual true like, like spiritual cause and effect thing that's in Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism and the like. The, the idea is with the spiritual cause and effect, if I do good things, well then the effect later on in the future will be I will be blessed in good ways. But if I do bad things, I'm, I'm incurring bad karma and I'm going to get bad things coming at me in the future. And all of this line of thinking, what does Jesus say? No! That's not how God operates. Let's, let's get this absolutely clear. He says no. Not once, not twice. No. God does not operate this way. 
And you know how he, how I, how you can unequivocally know that to be absolute truth. Because you're still alive. Because you're still standing. Because God has not sent a divine lightning bolt from heaven to wipe you off the earth. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? It's not like God is a divine judge up there keeping a record and saying, Oh, you did this? Okay, that's going to be a level two punishment there. Ooh, you did that, though. That's going to be like a level 10 punishment, and I'm going to get you. No. That's not the punishment. What's the punishment? The punishment for our sins, Romans helps us out a lot. There is no difference. All have sinned. We're all in the same boat. The doctor who heals people, the murderer who kills people, the parents who bless their kid with the best environment, the parents who walk out on it, all have sinned. And the wages of that sin, Romans says, is death. What you and I deserve, the punishment for our sins, is death. We all deserve to have towers falling on us. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's also why Jesus doesn't just say, no, this isn't how God operates, period, end of story, move on. It's like Jesus is never out just to correct a teaching. He's always out to help and correct and love a heart. He doesn't just see this bad teaching, this bad doctrine that they're holding on to. He sees what it's doing to their souls. So he doesn't just say, no, that's not how God operates. He says, and unless you repent, you will die too. He says, all of these headlines, they're tragic. Yep. You guys see it. You listen to the news. You see the loss of life. He says, you know what they should be? There should be a wake-up call for you to say, am I ready? Like, if this happened to me, if a tower fell on me, would I be ready? And the answer to that question has everything to do with that word Jesus used, repent. Which is a church word that is, just deserves a sermon series in and of itself. I'll try to do it justice in uh, 60 seconds. The word repent we often associate with just an individual sin. Uh, so I, I sinned, I did something, I repent of that sin. I'm not just saying I'm sorry of that sin, but I'm turning away from that sin. I'm headed down this path. Repentance is like an about face. You turn around, you go towards God. You go away from that sin. That is absolutely true, and that is a very narrow definition, narrow understanding of it, but it's also a much broader idea than just focusing on a specific sin, a specific moment. When you look at the definition of the word, it's the Greek word metanoia, which simply means in English, change of mind. That's what repent, repentance means, a change of mind. It's not so much a, well, here's a sin, I changed... It's a whole attitude. It's not just changing a behavior, changing an action. It's changing an attitude. It's, a, it's the life of a believer. The life of a believer is a life of daily, constant repentance. It's a whole attitude transformation, a whole makeover, a whole attitude change. That's what he's saying. And to help us understand some of the implications of that, what that repentant life truly looks like, the the mark of genuine faith. By the way, Scripture talks about uh, fruits of repentance and fruits of faith. They're one and the same thing. 
what this looks like, he gives us this parable, and he gives it to us in verse 6. He says, A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Now, the parable is pretty self-explanatory as far as the problem. You've got a fruit tree that's not producing any fruit. The guy goes to it three consecutive years, and it looks healthy. It's green. It's got branches. It looks fine. One problem, no figs. What's the point of having a fruit tree if you don't have any fruit, right? Any gardener taking care of a tree like that or a bush or any sort of fruit-bearing thing that's not producing fruit, it's a dead sign to them that something is dead. Something inside is horribly, terribly wrong. And it's defeating its entire purpose of existing. You might as well chop it down. And what does this have to do with these people. It kind of seems like, okay, are these like two totally separate points? Not at all. It has everything to do with them. It has everything to do with us. Who was Jesus' audience? He was talking to people who weren't suffering, who weren't having towers fall down on them, who weren't being slaughtered. They were fine. They didn't have those troubles. They were living problem-free. And Jesus says, yeah, watch out. I think maybe another way to maybe modernize this and make it just go a little bit home to you, Jesus would be talking to the stereotypical Midwestern family whose hope is to find a great spouse and have a couple kids and settle down in a really nice house and have a stable income, maybe a family pet or two or three, And live a life without care and no problems and everything is happy and fine. Does that not sound like the American ideal for what this country says you can do with your life and you have a right to do with your life? Is there anything wrong with that? Not necessarily. But Jesus is trying to tell them, trying to tell us, it's at those moments when there is no direct spiritual assault, when there is no direct physical suffering and pain that you're going through, that you can be most vulnerable. Watch out. More than that, repent. Come again, Jesus? Repent? What What have I done wrong? What's going on? I, I'm offended that you would say such a thing, Jesus. Why are you saying this? Well, remember what the group thought? Well, these people who suffered this way, oh, They must have been doing something terrible. They must have ticked off God. They must have done some awful sins that nobody else knew about that that they died this way, right? They're worse than us, but in that thinking, understand simultaneously when you're saying that, you're automatically saying, I'm better. You're setting up the comparison. Oh, they must have been guiltier, worse than, which means I'm not as guilty, I'm better than because I don't have those circumstances going on in my life, I must be okay with God. Because I'm not having a tower fall on me, it's a short step from there to concluding, okay, God must be okay with me. God must be pleased with me. I must be doing something right. 
which is nothing other than the definition of self-righteousness. And that's why Jesus says, if it's in those comfortable times when nothing is calling, when your kid doesn't break his arm on a Friday. No, I'm just kidding. When it's in those comfortable times that suddenly you are very vulnerable. And Jesus says, as soon as you see something, a new story, someone else having, it's very easy to set up the comparison. Well, you know, I mean, that's happening to them. Well, if they would have just done this, well, I'm doing this, which is why as soon as you do that, if your attitude is anything but for the grace of God go I, if your attitude is anything but that could easily happen to me and it's only by the grace of God that it's not, if your attitude is anything but that, you are very much in danger, Jesus says here, of having a tower fall on you, more than that, being chopped down and thrown away. And friends, he's not just talking about physical death. He says perish. Eternity is long and hell is hot. Comfortability, insecurity. Security, uncomfortability. I'm fine. Things are okay. Nothing's bad happening. God must be okay with me, right? It is so subtle. It is so dangerous. And I see it all the time. I see it when parents come to me in tears, sorrow and grieving over their child or their family member who they feel they're lost, they're wayward, they're gone. They've, they've forsaken God. They, 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 don't, they don't believe in him. I don't think so. They haven't been to church. They haven't been connected to God. And, and whenever that concern for their spiritual, for their eternal life is brought up to them, I can almost guarantee you what you're going to hear. Well, pastor, well, mom, well, dad, well, it's not, I still know Jesus. I still know what Jesus has done. I still know that Jesus lived and died for me. I know he died for my sins. It's not like I've forgotten that. My concern is not that you've forgotten that. My concern is you're not producing any fruit. Because I don't know of anywhere in Scripture that it equates faith with a nugget of knowledge about Jesus and God. But when Scripture does talk about faith, it talks about it as a living thing that produces fruit. And I think the Apostle James in his book, James in the New Testament, I think he said it so best because he says it just so bluntly. It's, you believe there is one God, he says. Great! Good for you! Even the demons believe that. How do you think it's working out for them? You know, faith without deeds? Go ahead, show me your faith. He says, show me your faith without deeds. You can't. Because faith without deeds is dead. There's no faith there. Brutal. But make no mistake, I don't just see this today in people who you might call disconnected from God. I told you this is subtle. I see it in people who we would see every day considered as connected to God. People who sit in a place like this. People who come and read stories, hear messages, hear sermons like this. And yet there's no fruit. I heard it. I listened to it. No change. Because that's what repentance is, right? A total change. No change. 
You can go through the religious motions. You can. But if there's no change going on, if there's no fruit being born, Jesus' warning is pretty clear, is it not? I know we're tempted to just think of other people whenever these sections come up. Well, I know so-and-so. Well, maybe so. No, let's not do that. Let's internalize this and you focus on you. Is there a place where you're not bearing fruit? Where there should be love is their hatred. Is there a grudge and bitterness against someone when there should just be free-flowing forgiveness as Jesus freely lets it flow from his hands inside? Is there a short fuse and a blow-up and flare-up of anger and rage when there should be patience and kindness and gentleness? Is there, is there scarcity and skimpiness when there should be generosity, thankful, abundant generosity? Is there gossip and slandering and tearing down of that one person, you know who they are, when instead there should be a care and guard and concern for them to, to build up their reputation and not just that, but to let your light shine and reflect Christ's love? Is there apathy when it comes to growing in your faith or is there passion? Is there a zeal to share the one thing that matters, the gospel of Christ to people, or is there a total indifference? Is there fruit? We could go on and on and on. Is there fruit being born in your life? Do not let the fact that you have a nugget of knowledge about Jesus Christ and God and what he's done, do not let the fact that you go through the religious motions make you feel like you're good and you're covered because you can look just like this tree here, so leafy, so green. You can fool things. You can fool people. You can fool pastors. You can fool Christians. You can't fool God. If there is no fruit, what does he say? Cut it down, throw it in the fire. It's harsh. This message is a brutal message. Not, sometimes the more you read the Gospels, the more you realize there's, there's some powerful messages in there, but it has to be. Because if he's talking to people who are so comfortable, sometimes the way to wake them up, sometimes the way to get to people is by hitting them right between the eyes with a two-by-four. And Jesus does that a lot. To wake you up. Because if, if the headlines then, if the headlines today, man, for crying out loud, if they tell us anything, it's that to assume that you will be alive tomorrow is to assume way too much. Are you ready? Are you bearing fruit? More importantly, how do we? Because it's really tempting just to say, I'm going to try to do this harder, which is also another reason why I love this parable because of, as strong of a warning as it gives you, it also gives you the answer to how fruit in a Christian's life is borne out. And it's right at the tail end. Sir, verse 8, Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it, fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Notice what the 
gardener here, the caretaker, doesn't say, he doesn't say, well, just give it a little more time and we'll see what happens. Just hope for the best. He doesn't say, well, okay, you know what? I, I hear you. We'll give it another year and I'm going to give it some TED Talks. I'm going to give it some motivational pep talks. I'm going to give it some guilt trips. I'm going to say, come on already, produce some fruit. Let's go. I want to see some figs come out the next day. Come on, you can do better. Oh, come on. I know you've got it in you. Like, obviously, that's ridiculous. Obviously, that's silly. And this is one of the reasons why you will find this illustration again and again and again to talk about faith in the life of a believer because it is so appropriate. How does a fruit tree produce fruit? If it's got a problem, it needs outside help. Just like you and me. It needs someone to come to care for it, to dig around it, to cultivate it, to nourish it. And is that not what your God did for you? You and I deserve to be cut down at the root for our unfruitfulness. I think we've established that, right? And yet God, in his infinite love, gives and shows off his patience. We call it our time of grace. But he doesn't just give us time because left on our own, we couldn't produce the fruit. He gives us a caretaker, a gardener, a savior who came to this vineyard, to this world to see all these trees. And he told God the Father, he said, don't cut them down, cut me down. Don't credit them for their unfruitfulness. No, no, no. Credit me. Give me their mistakes. Give me their faults. Cut me down. And credit them with my fruitfulness. Why on earth would he do that? Because he knew you didn't stand a chance to produce fruit to save yourself. He says, it's got to be this way. And not just that, but it shows you the lengths of how much your God loves you, wants you, saves you, redeems you, owns you, cares for you. It shows you when you look at repentance, wait a second, saying no to me, to myself, saying yes to God. When you see this, you suddenly realize, yes, I give my life to you. You are my Lord. You loved me infinitely. You are clearly worth following. Here's my life. Take it. Also that you could produce fruit. So that you could live an abundant life with him. And he didn't just do that. There wasn't just an isolated incident, you know, back in the early A.D. No, he does this every time we go to his word, we read his word. He does it through his messages, right? That's what he does in his word. He, as a caretaker, he comes and what's he do? He's got to dig up that soil and sometimes it is hard, it is packed down, it is full of stubborn clay, the self-righteousness, the pride that we are so blind to, we don't want to admit it. He digs it up. It's hard. It's painful with the sharp edges of his, of his word, right? But what does he do it for? So that he can nourish with the fertilizer, if you will, with the nourishment of his 
promises of forgiveness and love and grace, saying there is, on the one hand, no sin that won't damn you. On the other hand, there is no sin that I will not forgive. And when you see that, He produces the fruit inside you. That is what gives you life. Him. Then in the times when no towers are falling on you, you can look at everything and say, God, it's by your grace. In the times when towers are falling on you, you can say, I know it's not because God's mad at me. He took that out already, right? But instead, you can say, even if it gets worse, whenever my day comes, because of Christ, I am ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when you are blunt and when you expose our heart for the pride, the self-righteousness, the sin that is there, our natural reaction is to turn away, is to set up a wall, is to to deny it. Don't allow us to do that. Instead, lay our hearts bare and allow us to see that because it's only when we see the depth of our lostness do we see the depth of your grace. The more we we see ourselves for who we really are, the greater the appreciation for your love and grace for us grows. Give us that. Help us that we, we hear these words and then we put them into practice. It's not by us that we can produce any of this fruit. No, we need you. We need your spirit. Give your spirit to us through these words so that all of us can look at those areas in our lives where we don't have fruit, missing fruit, and change us. Allow us to repent, not just of the sins, but allow us to have a whole life of repentance, a whole change of mind. So that in the good times and bad times, when towers aren't falling, when towers are falling, we can say it's all by your grace that we stand. It's all by your grace that we have what we have. To you be the glory. Grant us that peace. Grant us that mindset. It's in your name we pray. Amen.